Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today we have a guest on. So it is not just myself and Daniel Foch. We are joined by a man with a very nice sounding voice, which actually makes Dan and I sound a lot less sophisticated than we are. And also is our first segue into becoming the International Real Estate Investor Podcast because <laughs> that nice sounding voice is comes from outside of Canada. Yes, I believe they are called Kiwis on the international stage, otherwise known as uh, lovely people from New Zealand. We've got Graham Carter on the show today. Graham is a founding partner at a mid-cap developer in Vancouver, Vertex Developments. But Graham's much more than that. He has a background in entrepreneurship and engineering. He produces a ton of content. He's a keynote speaker and just an overall great guy. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I've i been looking forward to when you pitched this episode to me, I've been looking forward to this discussion because as I mentioned in the interview, there was this tweet that came out from Mike Moffat and Eric Lombardi was talking about it as well, where it's literally a hockey stick graph of multi-unit housing versus detached housing in New Zealand. And so, you know, much like Canada and other countries in the Commonwealth, a lot of people want to move there. Population growth is high. I think in pre-COVID, New Zealand had similar population growth to Canada or that Canada is seeing today, like 2% to, I think they hit 2.2, 2%. And then in 2019, I guess they were they they had a very similar housing crisis. One of the, one of the ones that was more severe than Canada, one of the few that was more severe than Canada. And I think one of the only places that has as bad debt to income. Uh, household debt to income when compared to Canada. So there's a lot of, you know, beyond obvi- the obvious geographic lack of comparison to Canada, there are some there are some great comparisons when it comes to policy, housing, and the problems and challenges that we face as economies. And so anyway, this chart, as of 2019, there was this event that happened, this upzoning that happened that pushed a lot of housing to start being developed. And you basically see multi-unit housing starts skyrocket after this announcement in 2019. 2019, I believe it was, or 20. It looks like before the upzoning took place before, but in 2019, basically housing starts just skyrocket. And so the question is, are we going to see something similar happen in Canada as a result? And we go through this this dialogue pretty exhaustively with Graham, an incredibly well spoken and sharp individual, and he's also a developer and real estate investor himself. So he really, really gets it from both sides, from the policy side, from you know the international comparison side, but also from you know, the side of somebody who is an active participate in the business of real estate. Yeah, exactly, Dan. So this whole conversation we have with Graham is is about essentially Canada versus New Zealand and and what Canada can learn from the actions that New Zealand has taken to massively repair their housing crisis. But that's not without the dark side, as Graham called it. So without further ado, let's dive right into that conversation with Graham Carter. Mr. Graham Carter, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Why don't we start things off with a brief introduction about who you are and maybe a bit about where you're from and, and what you're doing these days. Yeah, thanks, uh, Nick and Dan. Great to be here with you guys today. So yeah, I'm, I'm originally from New Zealand, which is why I talk funny. <laughs> um, I've been in Canada almost 20 years and really come from an engineering, I guess, large project infrastructure background. Spent many years building 
infrastructure projects around the power industry, solar farms, wind farms, various kinds of structures uh, in terms of a real estate context. And about five years ago, got into property development in the Metro Vancouver area. So my current gig is called Vertex Developments. I'm one of the founders there. We're a multifamily developer, primarily working on, uh, you know, I guess up, up the food chain. We've started with a couple of townhouse projects. We've got some wood frame six-story wood frame projects in development. And then uh, we've actually got a concrete project, uh, 20-story concrete project as well. So really trying to uh, go up the food chain in terms of scale of development. You know, my interest in property started, my mom and dad used to own rental properties. And I was the kid back in the day, in the summer, putting wallpaper on the walls with this big sticky glue and big brushes, right? So I've kind <laughs> of uh, done it all. And, and back in those days, they still used wallpaper. Yeah, I was going to um, say, I was a similar uh, kid, but I, we had paint by the time I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have a few more gray hairs than you, but um, yeah. So you know, always interested in property, and you know, the last five years we've we've dive, dove uh, dive right into multifamily projects, and it's certainly been a wild ride. Yeah, that's a that's a great and and varied background, and it's funny, you know, just just a piece on on the talking funny part. It, it's so funny. I remember my so my Nona, uh, obviously Italian. She lived in Canada for well over 50 years. And I think her accent actually got stronger Italian as she got older. So it's, uh, I don't belong anywhere, right? My, in Canada, I sound completely strange. I go back to New Zealand, I think I sound Canadian. So, like, I, I don't belong anywhere. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> the citizen of the world. That's good. Exactly. Love it. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, Grim, that's one of the things we're here to, to chat about, right? I, I think you, you recently did a, uh, a thorough and and really kind of cool presentation on New Zealand versus Canada and a lot of the similarities and the differences, which which is kind of the the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, but the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, Canada is a young country in a lot of ways. Why don't you think Canadians and and the, maybe the, maybe it's the government, maybe it's maybe it's the private sector. But why do you think Canadians are learning from other countries and other major cities in response to a lot of the challenges we're facing right now, specifically in the housing sector? I think it's a great question. The you know I was in Toronto earlier this year, and I was shocked at how little cross pollination there is between the two cities, Vancouver and Toronto, in Canada. Let alone looking outside of the outside of our jurisdiction. So I think, um, you know, there's a fundamental geographic uh, challenge where we're just such a large geographic distance with such a small population relative to the land that we have. So I think that's one. I think in BC, I can speak mostly to the BC context, but we, we're we so busy on the hamster wheel trying to deliver stuff that we don't actually stop and pause and think, you know, put our head above the parapet and look at what are other people doing? Like New Zealand's a good example. Australia, there's some examples where they've gone through the same stuff that we're going through and some of it's worked and some of it's been a complete disaster. But why don't we, I, I agree. I think we need to spend our time looking at other jurisdictions and learning from them, best practices. You know, I think mostly it's the new world countries. You look at Europe, they've got some different challenges with, you know, just because their buildings uh, often are structurally much older than, than Canada has even been alive, as you say, as the young country. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think it's a really good point that we need to be looking and that's, Part of the reason why I'm, I'm really keen to do this talk a little bit about New Zealand because it's a market that I understand and I think there's some really interesting dynamics that we can learn from in, in the Canadian context. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that there's a tweet from Mike Moffat, who I follow on on Twitter, and he I, I think his tweets self destruct because I, every time I go back, I have to start screenshotting them because I can't find the links everywhere I save them. But this one was fortunately retweeted or, or recontextualized by a guy named Eric Lombardi, who's active on Twitter. But basically, and and really like in the you know housing supply, I think one of the principles of um, of more neighbors Toronto, kind of like EMB groups. But he mentioned in 2019, New Zealand's federal government took action to seriously liberalize zoning laws in major cities. And I think Mike Moffat's original tweet shows how after that, there, there was this flood of... I'm going to put the tweet up behind me I'm in a second, but uh, the, just the chart. But there was this flood of new multi-unit construction thereafter. Like, you know, it was kind of for a period of time, multi-unit and detached housing were kind of growing in tandem. And then after this upzoning, it just unleashed this flood of of multi-unit supply. So do you think now that we're seeing the Canadian government going in that direction, really, you, you basically, you have the, the federal government going around telling <laughs> municipal governments that they have to upzone, basically, right, in order to get funding, plus the, you know, you have this jockeying between the two political parties for the next election to talk about, or, or it seems to be one of the pressing issues is upzoning is going to solve the housing crisis, whether or not it is, who knows. And there's some other comparisons I think we can make, but can you kind of give me an idea of what happened from a policy perspective in 2019, what happened thereafter and and what impacts this has had on housing affordability, on investment prospects for investors, on development prospects. Is it solving the issue that we seem to be all facing in the Commonwealth as a result of population growth? Yeah, that's a big question. I'll, uh, I'll uh, yeah, start. I, I have a habit of asking questions that aren't actually questions, Like, um, but uh, there's... Uh, there, I think you get the idea of, of what I'm yeah. ho- hoping that for you, to have you explain there. I just don't want to be like the guy from Odd Lots where it's like, can you talk about this and then <laughs> open the floor? Uh, yeah, absolutely. New Zealand's a really, really good case study because of the size of the market and it's got some really unique characteristics. So New Zealand is a country of about 5 million people and we have about 80 million sheep. We'll get the sheep direct out of there before uh, we, we can go. <laughs> Do the uh, sheep have enough housing? Is that a, Are they the taken care of? <laughs> it's funny when I I did a like a cultural exchange in New Zealand and naturally I spent uh, like three or four days on a, on a sheep farm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we love our lamb anyway. Yeah. So New Zealand's got five million people. Uh, we're geographically unique in that we we don't have very close neighbors. We're in an island in the middle of the ocean, basically. It's a three-hour flight to Australia. That's kind of our closest uh, neighbor. So from a, prop, a housing and, I guess, government policy point of view, we're kind of isolated. And so we often run experiments, tests across the country and all kinds of things. And New Zealand has been a great testbed for technology and all kinds of things because we're a relatively smart population. We're well-educated. We embrace new things, new ideas. You know, New Zealand was the first place in the world to allow women to vote, for example. So, you know, we've got very interesting policies from our government all the way back to the start of our, you know, when New Zealand was founded in, 18, in the 1840s. So I used to read the Vancouver Sun, which is one of the big newspapers here in Vancouver, and literally the New Zealand Herald, the major paper in uh, in Auckland, the articles are identical, right? So we've got these housing affordability problems, too much immigration, we can't build fast enough, there's not enough jobs for people, there's, we're not putting in rapid transit quick enough. Like you literally could could uh, take the, an article from Vancouver and put it in the Auckland newspaper, like, and it would be the exact same article with the exact same language. It was it was quite crazy how the same in, in, in the BC context. And I know Toronto is very, very similar as well. So the most fascinating thing happened through COVID where 
we New Zealand completely shut its borders for th- just over three years. Like we didn't allow one person in, one person out. Like I, as a, I have, I have a passport. I'm a citizen. I couldn't even fly into my own country to see my parents to see my wow. family. That's a fascinating experiment, and you know, I'm not saying I agree with it completely. Like you know, a lot of people who lived overseas, their family members were passing away. They couldn't go and say, say their goodbyes to their loved ones. Like it was crazy. Mm-hmm. But that completely sealed off the immigration curve, and so. Somewhere in BC, they allowed construction to continue through the pandemic, but we had no no immigration. So what happened was we built houses, we built houses, we built houses, and there's no no new demand coming into the market. And even within uh, regions in New Zealand, Auckland was kind of sealed off for numbers of weeks from the rest of the country. So we didn't even have you know internal uh, immigration. So what actually happened in Auckland specifically, being the biggest city, we actually came back to a supply and demand balanced market. So we caught up. And so there was a number of things that happened after that. And actually, house prices, start, you know, with the high interest rate environment, supply dropping off, sorry, supply kind of keeping the same, and but demand dropping off, we actually ended up having this balanced market, normal, normalized market. And actually, at some point, I was back there last year, and they were saying, well, actually, supply is outweighing demand right now. So what happened was prices started to drop in the, in, in the residential side. But, you know, it really is an interesting dynamic because, does supply fix all the problems, and does government policy drive that? So we had we've had a, a we had a left wing government in New Zealand for the last six years, and actually three weeks ago we had an election, and we actually don't have a government yet, but we will have a right wing government coming in. So that's there's an interesting confidence in our market that's already changed in the two weeks while they're going through the counting of the votes, and we have a, a mixed member proportional system. So there's some takes some time to form a new government under a coalition, but there's already a confidence change and a change in the economic activity around housing and prices have started to rise in the last two weeks since a new government was in place. So government policy is, is, a, is a really, really key piece of this where you know, governments generally, generally can't build houses, but they have a big role to play in terms of the policy and the, the mood of the, the market. Yeah, I mean, I find, that, I find that fascinating. I'm just going to pull some of the stats that you, that you provided here in, in the presentation that you sent over, Graham. So since COVID, the result of new housing has exceeded demand by almost 60,000 homes over the past two years, which means that in 2022, New Zealand house prices dropped 17% over two years and expected to decline another 4.8%. This year being 2023, you know, we always talk about the supply and demand issue here, right? I mean, we, we desperately need more homes. They're not being built. They're not being built nearly fast enough. So that problem was prevalent in New Zealand as well. And then literally within three years, it seems to have been totally fixed. So, you know, that uh, whereas whereas Canada, we've actually just essentially been open up the borders even more. Right. We're, We're increasing the supply and demand problem, whereas New Zealand seemed to fix that. So, I mean, it's just one of those funny things where it's like, let's look at a another Commonwealth country that has very similar issues and and was able to fix them literally within a matter of years, uh, whereas we've decided to actually do the exact opposite. I guess like my thought around that, though, Nick, is that it is a timing thing, right? So like if, if you look at New Zealand's if they if they did this in 2019, like we're just late. We're had we done this when interest rates were what they were in 2019, 
then we probably would have seen a similar impact. And, you know, and Eric Lombardi's tweet does, it also mentions that, you know, housing starts boomed, even though prices and rents were falling as a result of this supply flood, which I think you you mentioned, Graham. But I guess the challenge currently in Canada is there's the economics don't work for, for developers to, you know, even if the zoning is coming through, you know, the, the, the output of the land would need to increase so substantially or the construction costs would need to come down so substantially or the capital costs would need to come down so substantially in order to make the economics of this work. And so, so now we're not necessarily, even though we're from a political, we're allowed to give the supply, we're not necessarily economically incentivized to do so, right? I mean, you can speak from the developer's context, I suppose. Yeah, every day I feel like I'm in a boxing ring and I'm getting punched in the nose. <laughs> but it's 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 brutal. And you know, for us, frankly, as a small developer who entered the market at the absolute worst time possible, looking back, like it's survival, right? And so if we don't survive, you know, I think as we know in the media, there's lots of other big developers that are in huge trouble right now. And so not only do we have this pressure of a, we can't build enough homes that we need to build with the immigration. We don't have enough tradespeople. We don't have the supplies, the supply chain. But developers are going out of business. And so this, I think, is a really, really big issue that needs to be addressed. And it's a full industry, full court press, like government. Everybody's got to come together and figure out how to solve it. Because if I'm out of business, I can't build any homes anymore. I'm going to go and do something else. Yeah. So I guess on, on that note, I, I do want to ask you about, about some zoning stuff, but before we get there, can you speak to any of like the, the pricing and the, the supply chain and any of the, like the kind of labor markets specifically that affect the, the housing stock in New Zealand? Like were we face, was, were, you know, were they facing the same issues that we were over here? You know, lack of skilled trades, uh, lack of projects being able to pencil out. Was that all the same, the same before? That was there was kind of that great split when you know New Zealand went right and we went left and we opened up our borders and they closed them down. We for sure it was an issue. One thing that I would say is that we New Zealand did a really good job of bringing in skilled trades from other countries, and you know I know Canada does some of that. To be honest, I, I, don't, I don't know about the stats in terms of how how many Canada brings in, but New Zealand looked at countries like the Philippines, Australia, and we essentially opened our borders to a- anyone that had a, ch- a skilled trade could come come and find a job in New Zealand and immigration would, the paperwork would catch up with them. And so they yeah. did a really good job of that. The problem we had in New Zealand was supply chain, being on the bottom part of the world in the middle of nowhere, sometimes getting supplies yeah, on a ship. Right. Down. I, I'll so, accept the supply chain excuse in New Zealand. Absolutely. <laughs> That's probably one of the few places. But they did a good job on the, on the trades. And, you know, we have really strong incentives uh, with trade schools. Like you got kids coming out of school realizing that, hey, a trade's a good career. I can go and do it. So yeah. I think, you know, there's a whole piece around trades that this industry, we need to solve that problem. And, you know, it's okay for, you know, tell the mom, Johnny can go and be a plumber because he can make just as much as being an engineer, right? So it's it's not a bad bad job to have. So I think there's a bit of a stigma that we've got to change in Canada around, around that. So, you know, it's... New Zealand's had its challenges for sure, but you know, as you say, it's turned around in three years, which is remarkable. But there's also a dark side. And yeah, so let's let's talk about that because you had mentioned some of the you know the pros and the cons and and the advantages and and the challenges of of implementing major changes like that, you know, across the country. And I think I wanted to also ask you about about those changes through the rezoning process in in the major cities like Auckland and 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 other ones. So. Let's talk a bit about those zoning changes and I think what you had mentioned, the unitary plan, and then, and then maybe some of the good and bad repercussions from, from those changes. 
Yeah. So in 2010, uh, Auckland is the biggest city. It's uh, New Zealand's about 5 million. Auckland's one and a half million, maybe close to 2 million people now. So just give you an idea of size. So it's it's not quite half the population. It's a third of the population, I guess. So 2010, Auckland went from a, you know, a municipal-based council system for, for municipalities into a, a regional super city, they called it. So you think of Toronto, you've got your different different municipalities. Well, those municipalities are no more. There's only one mayor for the whole greater Toronto area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Metro Vancouver uh, group here, but you know the and, and the municipalities are run with separate mayors, separate councils. So that all got amalgamated in 2010. And then once that happened, again, good and bad, local representation in your ward or in your community is a little tougher, but Again, you can look at uh, big issues like transportation and real estate at a, at, at, a, at a corporate level, which I think is really positive. So 2016, the unitary plan came in, and essentially what it was was a mass upzoning of the entire city. So about three quarters of the land of the city got upzoned. And so the single family zoning did not exist anymore. It was essentially every property is multifamily. And this is starting to happen in Canada now with you know the policy announcements over the last few months. So what happened between uh, 2016 and 2021, uh, the number of building consents or building permits, it actually quadrupled. We had four times the amount of building permits that we used to have. So, and what actually happened, and the reason for it was around affordability. They said, if we can get rid of the rezoning process and then you can start building quicker, then housing should be more affordable. What's interesting actually is this idea of a mass rezoning. So I know in the US and Chicago and New York, some other major cities, they've actually done localized rezoning. So maybe you pick one area of a city and actually there are, there's a bunch of academic papers you can read, share the links, but it actually hasn't worked when you don't do it across the entire city, you do a pocket, it doesn't work. But if you go citywide, actually in Auckland's case, it, it worked really well. So what actually happened, I'll talk about some of the challenges in a second, but what actually happened was uh, rents actually did soften with the supply increase. So I think the stats were that over the period between 2016 and 2022, uh, household incomes went up by 34%. Wow. Rent went up by 19%. Yeah, we so, don't, we are not experiencing that same thing in Canada because uh, we've seen, we've seen income essentially stay the same almost across the board and, and rents just skyrocket to, to, you know, unimaginable levels in, in some places. Yeah. So, this, this idea of mass construction, mass up zoning, you know, as a deal developer, you know, our biggest enemy is time. So, you know, I've got projects in Vancouver that have a shortened rezoning process, but it's still 18 months. Right. So when you spend 30, 40, 50 million bucks for land, you got to pay interest at 9% for 18 months to get a rezoning and then another two years to get a, a building permit. No wonder you're underwater. Yeah. So in terms of the the challenges or or the dark side, you know, the first comment I'd make is although this got upzoned across the entire city, you know, not all postcodes were equal, right? And so certainly the lower socioeconomic areas suffered from significantly more development than the higher socioeconomic areas. So it definitely was not even or quote unquote fair that you know these uh, poorer areas in general got completely like densified. And as a result, the communities become more, I don't want to use the word slum, but they've become much more overpopulated, dense, and all the dark side that you think, you know, garbage, traffic, people hanging around, n- n- maybe no retail. Like, yeah. those kind of, so it was done so quickly that some of that kind of, is this going to make be a nice place to live? Think, thought, is this going to be a good community where you want to bring your kids up? It, it didn't exist. You know, and I've got friends, actually, the area of Auckland where I, I grew up, 
uh, was you know predominantly a single family area. We've now got these streets where you know like a cul-de-sac, and you've got four or five 18 to 20 unit townhouse projects nestled amongst single family homes. And one thing we don't do in New Zealand is uh, uh, below grade parking. So these got, these are all you know a slab on grade, and you've got uh, wood frame construction on top. Where do you put all the cars for these people? And there's like a, a cul-de-sac where the kids play, you know, rugby or soccer in the in the end of the the the, the circle. It's just it's just like literally there's cars falling in everywhere because there's nowhere to put them. And so some of these really nice neighborhoods now are being ruined because you know I got friends who on, on their street they don't want to live on their street anymore and they've lived there for 25 years because it's just it's just overloaded. So, you know, that's something that's really, really critical is to be thoughtful about where are we putting density? Are we putting it on major transit lines? Are we putting it near the CBD uh, where there's already some kind of density? Are we upzoning existing buildings and adding density on top rather than kind of bastardizing other areas where families might want to be? So that is, for me, the, the biggest challenge is it's not one size fits all. And so how do we do this in a way that's smart? We've got to upzone and this mass upzoning does work. But we've got to do it in a way that makes us our communities more livable because Canada is a great place to live. We want to continue that for the next generations. On that note, because this has always really fascinated me. So I would say in the GTA, a lot of these McMansion subdivisions, like your ground-based mm-hmm. two to 3,000 square foot, four-bedroom homes are, are functionally becoming, they're either occupied by wealthy people who can afford them, owner-occupied, or they're purchased by an investor and they're functionally a purpose-built rent, um, purpose-built rooming house. You'll see four cars in the driveway. You'll see cars all over the streets, parked everywhere. Like most of these new subdivisions, if you go there, there's cars everywhere. It's just wild. So there's always this four, there's more than four adults living in the, in, in many of these homes. So I feel like we kind of can already see the impact of that without even actually having the upzoning. My question is, do you think that when you hear the direction that we're going, in Canadian cities like Edmonton, City of Toronto, Vancouver, uh, I guess province-wide in BC in a lot of cases, these incremental gains to density such as fourplex everything or duplex plus a garden suite will cause more problems, like cause the problems that, you, that you're describing or, or solve more problems? I guess, are they net positive or negative from your perspective? My perspective is it's a negative. I think if you've got things popping up in streets, where it hasn't been thought out as a proper plan for that for that area, I think you, you're, you're asking for trouble. You know, I think we need to focus on, like, it's, it sounds good. It's a good soundbite. You know, there's already articles in BC, you know, the mayors are starting a bun fight because they're saying, well, who's going to pay for the sewer upgrades, right? These these The, the infrastructure is not designed to have six homes in every single family lot in the city. Uh, like, it's just not, not, so who's going to pay for that? And typically, the developer pays CACs, but mum and dad are going to put another house on the back of their property, they're not going to have $500,000 to pay for a new sewer and water line. Like, that, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And it's but, not like in Toronto, sorry to interrupt you there, but it's not like in Toronto, we have, they have the lowest property taxes in the country. So it's not like money's going from that, from the operating budget to pay for those upgrades. It is a good point, right? It is an excellent point. Don't get me started on cities, right? Cities spend so much money on other things that, you know, their job is sewer, roads, and garbage pickup, right? But they do so much other stuff that, you know, they kind of lost their core focus, but that's a whole different topic. Well, it's just they, <laughs> but, they want to go out of scope, I guess, because if you can't if you can't be good at something, then just go find, play a different game. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it's, so I think, look, you know, the concept of community plans, having the community involved, I think it's absolutely imperative to making sure that we do this well and we do it smart. 
because doing this just for doing its sake is not going to have a happy outcome. Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating because it, it and I, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but it, it definitely makes a bit of a case for for nimbyism, right? Like, I mean, if you look at the repercussions of immediately going and, and increasing density by like 10x on, a, you know, what used to be a single family cul-de-sac and a great place to raise kids and, you know, playing outside and ample parking and, and just quality of life in general. And then you go in each single family home, you know, you now have six different units in there, whether it's infill development or, or greenfield, you're, you know, you, you've, you've drastically changed the, the look, the feel. And then again, the supporting infrastructure required for that neighborhood to, to really be, you know, a true neighborhood. You know, it's fascinating because it sounds like, you know, initially I was like, okay, you know, New Zealand's figured it out, right? Like, hey, like all you got to do is shut down the borders, incentivize builders, you know, pause, hit pause for three years and, uh, and you know, we, maybe we can fix this thing. But by the sounds of it now, it's like New Zealand did it too quick. I mean, Canada's blatantly doing it way too slowly. Right. Um, but it sounds like New Zealand kind of when it did it way too quickly, which which kind of there's got to be a happy medium where it's like, yeah, you know, you can densify those streets, but maybe it's not six units on every house. Maybe it's, you know, turning everything into two units. And then where are, you know, the city's got to get involved and be like, hey guys, you know, we, we just updated the sewer or the public transit, or, you know, there's a lot of parks in this area. So you don't need to be playing in the street. You know, your kids can go play in this park. So it really does, you know, it's a top down effect of like, we need city planners, we need architects, we need engineers, we need builders. Everyone really needs to get on board to to make this work. So how else, I guess, do you see things kind of taking shape in New Zealand, Graham? Because this is all fairly recent, right? I mean, this is literally all in the last three years and, and there's already some some what it sounds like fairly negative repercussions for for people living in those neighborhoods. Um, you know, I guess that the positive is there's there's more people that actually can can live in those neighborhoods. But, you know, what's the quality of life now for for those people that have been living there for a while and for the new people? So how are things kind of taking shape there? And then, and then we can kind of look at, you know, applying that same methodology to Canada. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll ask the question. I've got a couple of examples related to that as well. I think that are real examples here in, in, in my world in BC that maybe give some context to that. I think in New Zealand, you know, in general, it's it's certainly it's it's balanced now. Like, there's a lot of people that are unhappy. A lot of people, just like in Canada through COVID, if you could move out of the big city for your job, a lot of people move to the regions and to, to smaller cities. So I think that's happened. I think, you know, frankly, a lot of the immigration, all the immigrants that come in, they used to live in in those conditions, right? They come from places that are overpopulated, and so for them, it's still vastly underpopulated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and even in BC, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of people from Hong Kong that come here and I have a 1200 square foot uh, townhouse that's three bedrooms. For them, it's a it's McMansion because I used to live in 400 square feet. Mm-hmm. So it's all relative, right? So, you know, the days of the white picket fence with a, with a, a thousand square, square foot, uh, sorry, 10,000 square foot lot are gone in the cities, right? If you want to do that, you got to go out somewhere else. So I think, has, that that change is happening in New Zealand, and I think people are accepting this is the new reality. And if I want something, then I and it's not here. I've got to go somewhere else and find it. But you know, I think uh, City of Burnaby in in BC did a, is is a good example. Um, again, I I don't understand the political nuances, but essentially the mayor of I don't know if you know the story, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, the mayor of Burnaby came on the TV news one day and he said, "I'm creating five town centres in Burnaby. If you live within six blocks of a rapid transit station, move." 
because I'm going to put 60-story towers and I'm going to put as much density as I can. <laughs> but if you live outside of that zone, I'm not going to touch your home. And you can go have your single family lot and you're good. And, you know, we look at Brentwood now and Metro Town and Edmonds as a success story, right? Because you look at Brentwood like in the last eight years, it's incredible. You see these like literally 60-story towers, like downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, and there's thousands of homes being built, but it's around transit. There's, there's services, you know, so that's one example. And the other example, I have a, a piece of land right now near the second busiest SkyTrain station in BC and across the road from the, the busiest Safeway in Western Canada. Under the current zoning, I'm allowed to build 12 stories on that site. And so I'm talking to council saying, guys, I'll go and build 12 stories if you give me a permit tomorrow. But I'm not doing a service to the, my community. If you look at Burnaby, that's 60 stories. Now, I don't want 60. I understand Vancouver doesn't want 60 in the suburbs. But it doesn't make any – I'm doing a disservice in the use of this land if I build 12. Like, it doesn't make any sense from a, a macro level. So I think those are the conversations. Like, let's put density around transit, around hubs, around busy streets where it actually makes sense and people – who want to be in those living situations can be there and just get on with their day. Yeah, no, that that's that's such a good point. Really fascinating stuff. So I guess kind of getting to the end here, what uh, I, I want to talk about a few things. You know, what's next for Canada? You know, the gap in housing is here is ridiculous. It's it's just increasing. I mean, CMHC is saying we need almost four million new homes on top of what's projected by, I believe, twenty thirty, just to just to hit affordability targets. Rents are soaring across the country. You know, Graham, you're on the west coast. Dan and I are in Toronto here, the two most expensive markets to live in 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 uh, in the country. It's getting hard here, and and now you know we're recording this on Thursday, November 9th. We've uh, we've seen. You know, the news headlines are full of horrible things like major developers going bankrupt, uh, developers getting sued, developers uh, going into receivership. And then, you know, even more ridiculous stuff like all these apparently pre-construction homes. I don't know if it's spontaneous combustion or uh, or arson, but, you know, there's a lot of really crazy stuff going on right now. So, you know, how do we curb that? Because if all of these larger and this isn't like the small to mid cap guys it's it's really large developers if we have these large developers that aren't being incentivized and are now going into bankruptcy and receivership and getting sued who's going to build all the housing that we need like do you have any comments or or thoughts on this yeah it's a pretty grim picture as i say like as a small developer we we have every day i'm fighting for survival and who knows if i'll make it or not frankly like and so if, if I can't make it and the big guys can't make it, what hope is there? So without being too doom and gloom, I think, you know, we as an industry have to solve this. You know, government has a role to play, but if we wait for the government to make a decision and to, to, to solve this thing, we're, we're, we're going to be up the creek without a paddle. Like, it's just not going to happen, right? So I think the industry needs to work together. I think we need to we need to figure out solutions. You know, high interest rate environment really doesn't help. Like, you know, and it's not even that it's high, it's that it's unknown how long it'll be high for. If we know it, we've got a runway of two years and then it's going to, the, the switch will flip. You know, every last interest rate uh, forecast from the economists that they've all been wrong. So, I mean, there's no yeah. signal. Like, I th- what I think at government level, we need a, uh, the government needs to come up with a plan. Here's a plan for interest rates, here's a plan for inflation. Obviously, it's not a guarantee, but it gives the market some confidence of here's what's happening and here's a timeline. Because otherwise, we're in this dark hole and we don't know, there's no light. And so we're just floundering around trying to figure it out. So I think as an industry, we need to come together. I think, you know, again, 
developers were, you know, developers and homeowners, we're all in the same boat. Like people who buy homes, like I don't, I don't want to charge more for my homes, but I have to because of interest rates and I got to pay the banks and da da da. Like I'm not, it's not developers versus homeowners. We're in the same boat. So let's work together as a, as an industry, but with the public as well. So I think the media has a big role to play in that. Uh, and then bring government in to, to also help put policies in place that will help fix this because it's the problem's not getting better, it's getting worse. And if if, if we don't fix it, it's going to be a calamity. Yeah, you, yeah, no, really well said. Do you feel um, like, so if I look back at composition of Canadian housing starts from like 1946 to like 1975, the National Housing Act through like administration of CMHC lending or like direct lending or approved lending through CMHC, was responsible for like 38 to 46% of all housing starts. And then the conventional development route was the remainder. And a lot of that was stimulated through tax incentive programs like the um, the MERB program, which basically allowed people to tax deduct the development and purchase of multi-unit residential buildings against their altered, like their regular income. So a lot of doctors and high earners, which most of them, I mean, we don't have that many of them left in Canada and a lot of them do their high earning in other countries. But, you know, that helped build a lot of supply from until basically the 90s when we started really doubling down on single family detached and home ownership as a tenant of Canadian culture. Um, Do you think that given that we're facing a recession, given that we're starting to hear some crack showing in the labor market and the development market that purpose-built rental, CMHC programs. So even as going as far as government-built social housing will be introduced as as a um, kind of a, either a make-work project to help the economy keep humming during recession or as something to help solve the housing crisis, given that the economics of the private sector solving it are basically gone during the, the current moment. Maybe if I answer this question, Government's building housing is never going to work. Governments can't build housing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's an easy way to get your per square foot construction costs to uh, in the market to increase by fifty percent overnight. Yeah, exactly. Um, they love they love to make things inflationary. I agree, but but the government whether or not private- yeah whether or not they should and will is a, is a different question. <laughs> right? Like, look at a government level. My personal opinion is we need leadership, right? Yeah. Like, um, someone's got to put stand up and put some a line in the sand. Um, and that's uh, in the political environment in today's context is very, very difficult to have people that are willing to do that, put their head above the parapet and really make some, some captain's calls on what needs to happen. But I think um, government incentives absolutely will help. And we, we absolutely need those. And that's government's role. It's not building homes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think, you know, the, the recent announcement with the GST on uh, purpose-built rentals, like, again, that's fantastic. It's really not going to make, it will only help, like eventually that'll get priced into the land. So it's not a long-term solution, but in the short term, it's great. And people have got projects, like we've got one project in development. It's really going to help our pro forma. It takes 3 million bucks off the, the pro forma cost line, right? So that's great, but that's that's just one very, very small slither of, of a solution. But we need some leadership from government to really, you know, and the government, different levels of government need to work together. Uh, again, whether that's possible, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that's what we need to fix this. So I think it's really, it's let's get everyone in a room and just put our issues on the table and just figure it out. Like this, this is not impossible. It just needs some leadership and some co- cohesion within the groups and the different stakeholders to get together. And there, there has to be a way like Canada's come through, you know, in the last hundred and was it 140 years that Canada has been around. 
we've solved some pretty ma- amazing problems. We've got smart people. We've got enterprising people. We're all entrepreneurs, you know, and so there's a way to solve this, but, you know, the current trajectory for me is pretty challenged. So I'm positive by nature, but, you know, we have a real problem that we need to kind of sit around the table and figure it out. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, Graham. I, I think that you're right. You know, government's there to support and incentivize builders who and developers who do exactly that, build and develop, and that's what their expertise are in. And I think a recent stat that showed that CMHC had built 12 homes in eight years probably answers the question for just showed everybody on uh, whether the government should be, you know, picking up the hammer and, and pouring the concrete on these projects. Graham, I want to respect your time. So we'll start to wrap things up here. I really appreciate your your insights on, on all of this stuff. For more of your insights, because I know that you're you're very active on, on LinkedIn and you do produce content and, and do talks and all that kind of stuff. Where can people find more of your content? Where can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about this or Vertex and, and your uh, development company? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm on, active on LinkedIn, uh, Graham Carter. So you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I give uh, daily updates on uh, entrepreneurship, leadership, and real estate. So kind of a bit of a mixed bag of all kinds of things. Also, I have a website, thoughtsbygraham.com. That's really uh, content. I do a bit of speaking as well as a bit of coaching with real estate and, and entrepreneur, entrepreneurs in, in that market. You know, and vertexdevelopments.com is our, our, our page with our, you know, a little bit of our projects. If people are interested to find out what projects we're working on, uh, information's all on there. So I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you guys and, I think, you know, us as the maybe uh, generation two or generation three developers, you know, the the younger demographic, quote unquote, if I can still put myself on that, I think is, you know, this is our this is our future. So, you know, we need a seat at the table. Again, some of the guys that have been in this industry for a while, they care about the problem, but they've already made their money and they're not going to be here for this. They don't need to be here for the solution because they're, they're kind of off into the sunset, right? So yeah. this is our generation's problem, <laughs> the next generation. And, you know, I think it's really exciting that you guys got this podcast and, you know, I think let's start this conversation because it's much needed and, you know, Canada is going to be greater than it ever was, but we've got to solve some, some, some challenges along the way. Definitely a Amazing. couple of challenges to solve. <laughs> One or two. Yeah. Thanks so that's much, the, Graham. That's the part that excites me the most though, is the rebuilding phase. Yeah. Well, every challenge is a double opportunity, right? Like let's, there's opportunity. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Thanks so much. We'll uh, we'll have you back and we'll uh, we'll get some updates from you. Uh, maybe maybe when there's been some some major changes. But in the meantime, go check out all of Graham's stuff on LinkedIn. His website is development company They're doing some pretty amazing stuff. And yeah, Graham, thanks so much. Appreciate it, guys. Great insights from a great guy. I got a thing for accents, man. I could listen to that guy talk all day. Insightful and it sounds nice as well. Yeah, there is some something soothing about an accent, especially a Kiwi accent. But also, <laughs> you know, it was really interesting because I, I I just assumed that this would be a solution to all of Canada's problems, the upzoning. But he he raised a lot of good points. Mm-hmm. It's really challenged the way that I think about upzoning because I'm I've been. It's no surprise to anybody on the show. I've been a huge proponent of upzoning of neighborhoods, and some of the, the some of the things he mentioned really made me think, oh damn, like that actually doesn't sound like that, you know, or that there could be problems that I potentially haven't thought about if it's executed at the scale that we're seeing there. And so, I mean, we are seeing a bit of thoughtful upzoning in Canada, but it, it's interesting from my perspective, how considerate we need to be as real estate investors to do or choose areas and projects that make sense, right? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, that was probably one of my favorite parts of the conversation is is some of the real life anecdotes that Graham was able to provide from from his experiences and and his friends and family that are still there where, you know, they've witnessed these extreme changes in some cases, right? Where you have a neighborhood going from, you know, 20 single family homes to all of a sudden, you know, 200 multifamily units and and the effects that that has on on transportation and infrastructure and and really the feel of that neighborhood. Right. So, I mean, it just goes to show that, yes, this it's, you know, going into this, I thought, okay, you know, Graham's going to provide some insights. All we got to do is copy New Zealand, shut down the borders, upzone everything in, you know, incentivize construction and and boom, the housing crisis is solved, but it really is not that simple. It, it, you know, the more you dive into this, it's a, it's a complex solution. And the more of the human element that you add and consider, the more complicated it gets. So really happy to have him on the show. And, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll do more work with him and follow him closely. Cause I, I think he's planning on, on actually doing a, a live case study where he goes back to New Zealand and, and tries to, you know, com- do some contrast and comparison to, to uh, both Vancouver and, and Toronto. Absolutely, man. I guess before we wrap up here, let's, you know, quick shameless plug. We are dropping the next cohort of the course next week. So stay tuned for that. Exciting. Um, meetups are happening November the 14th. Nope. November the 12th. Is that the right day? No, it's the 14th. Second Tuesday of the month. Next Tuesday. It's the 14th. November 14th. I had it right the first time. Meetups, <laughs> 12 cities across the country. If you're interested in hosting a meetup, email us through the show and also check out realestatemerch.ca. We got some sweet Christmas sweaters on the go. We still haven't figured out legally how to get the dead co hats printed by the way our dropshipper refused to print some of the ones that we put out so we're uh, working we on work it. we work just went bankrupt and we I want know. hats <laughs> i know i'm working on a we i'm working on it i'm working on it so anyway thanks a lot for listening everybody make sure you check out all of the the fun stuff that we have for you and we'll see you next time the canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.